said, again, I'm, I'm Phil Dickey, the associate pastor here, and just grateful for the opportunity to stand with you this morning um, and continue with our last section here on chapter 7 in our year-long series of Unfold. Um, this chapter has been titled Radical, and if you remember this year-long series, each chapter is somewhat of a, its own series in and of itself, but the idea being that um, it all ties together in a year-long unfolding narrative of us figuring out where do we find ourselves in the story of God. What role do we play in this ongoing story of the character, nature, and life of God, and how do we play a role in that? And so this chapter, chapter 7, has been called Radical, and we've talked about things like radical nonviolence, and last week was radical compassion. And so this week we close out talking about radical hospitality. What a week to talk about radical hospitality. And I will tell you, our, this, this theme, right, radical hospitality, has been planned for months and months and months. And you may think that we just chose this idea based on the events that have happened within our country this week. And, and while the events that have happened have influenced the content of the sermon, this theme has been chosen for a very long time. And if you don't know what events I'm talking about, we'll just take a deep breath. We're going to get there in just a moment. But um, I love that Sammy invited us to kind of like go through this process of, of thinking what does hospitality look like when we invite guests into our home. And I'm, I'm going to invite you to do a similar thing, right? Because sometimes what's good for our kids is even better for us as adults. So... Um, as you think of hospitality, what is it that does drum up in your mind, right? Maybe it is those, those greeters that Sammy talked about when you walk into this space, whether it's Chad or Charlotte or whoever, whoever it was that met you and handed you a bulletin. Maybe that to you is a sense of hospitality. Or maybe you've come to a church event and you sat down at a table and there was a lovely centerpiece and it was a beautiful environment and um, Barbara Cantor has the gift of hospitality when she creates these spaces and we walk into them and it's just so welcoming and inviting. Or maybe it's like when I was, I was talking with Randy this week about hospitality and he said, well, well, I'll tell you what hospitality is. I will never buy a car anywhere other than a Sewell dealership because Sewell does hospitality and they do it well. They wrote the book on I was like, all right, well. And, and sometimes I think of like, like Southwest Airlines, right? Like the, in a, an industry where hospitality is not really so much the norm, right, in the airlines, Southwest time and time again shows up in ways that are quite hospitable, whether it's with, with joy and funny jokes, right, like what they're saying the kids were, or even like I, the free drink. There's so many things Southwest does to make things not as bad when you're flying, right? If you've flown lately, you know what I'm talking about. Um, when I think of hospitality, though, there's, there's a specific story that sits in my mind, and it takes me back to college, so rewind a little ways here. Uh, the summer was 2005, and I went to Brazil with a group from my college and at the church we were attending at the time, and we went there to build a church. And, oh, yep, there's the picture. So you all wonder about the dreadlocks. Just think, the hair could still look like that. So just, it could be worse. Um, 2005, this is circa 2005. So we go to Brazil to build this church uh, with this organization. We flew into Manaus and spent a little bit of time in Manaus and then flew over to Rio Branco, which is in the west side of, of Brazil. And this is where we went to build this church, and this company had been doing it for years. And um, it, was hard, it was hard work, y'all, like hard, hard work. So you can see these tiles. Uh, I don't know if you've ever laid brick before or laid tile, like tile bricks like that. It's not easy. And so my job with one other guy was to make all the, it's called masa, the, like, the, the stuff in between there that like pulls them together, right? And it was just so tiring. Well, one day at the end of the, the, the work day, we were invited by some of the locals to come play soccer. Let me just tell you, I'm from Missouri, 
um, in small town Missouri, where we didn't even have a soccer. It wasn't even an option to play soccer when I was growing up. That's kind of how small town Missouri was. I think I'd maybe played one time in my entire life, but because I'm competitive and because like, I'm athletic, right? I can go play soccer with Brazilians. I mean, they're just Brazilian soccer players, no big deal. Um, so me and my, my friends, we decided we'd go, and um, it's, a, it's a sand pitch, right? Field pitch. I know the terminology. It's a sand pitch that we're playing on, because in Brazil, apparently, they play soccer on sand. And uh, we're like, all right, this is a little different, but we go out, and we're playing, and we're having so much fun, and we're melting in the intense summer heat of Brazil, but just having a great time with these locals. And we're actually holding our own. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves, Regardless of the fact that they were like 10 and 12-year-olds, we felt pretty good about ourselves, that like we were doing a pretty decent job. So we're running down. You don't do a lot of dribbling in sand soccer, right? Because the ball doesn't roll real well, but so you have to really be good at passing. And so I'm running down, and I'm, I go to make this cut uh, and turn real, real quickly. And right as I did that, I hit a hard patch of the sand, and it literally just tore the whole front part of my, my foot off. Like, it just flapped. Whoosh which I just immediately collapsed. And I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say I panicked, but if you've ever been in a, a not familiar country before and something fairly devastating has happened to your body, you don't have great thoughts. You think, what in the world am I going to do now? So I'm sitting in this sand soccer pitch uh, in the middle of nowhere, Rio Branco, Brazil, surrounded by 10 and 12-year-olds, bleeding profusely from my foot. And these kids walk over to me, and they help me up, and, and let me just go ahead and say, my Portuguese, it's not good. Like, like, my Spanish is decent, so I really just tried to speak Spanish and see if it would, like, kind of translate somewhat. Um, so we're trying to communicate back and forth, like, what in the world do we do with an injured foot? And they, they get me up, and they start walking me. I have no idea where we're going. But I'm hobbling along, they're walking me off the soccer pitch, and they, they walk me across the street, and they knock on this, this house, the door of this house. No idea whose house this is. Middle of nowhere, Brazil. And this woman comes to the door, and they start talking. And again, I have no idea what they're saying because I don't speak good enough Portuguese. And she opens the door, and she invites me into her house. And she sits me down on her couch, and she puts something for me to prop my foot up. And again, the kids are talking, and she's talking. And she says something that I'm assuming is, wait here, I'll be right back, because then she disappears to the back of the house, and comes back with an unmarked bottle, which... Okay, not really sure what's happening, right? Um, and she takes it out. I'm thinking, like, do we have, like, Neosporin or something? You know? And um, she starts dripping it on my foot that, again, has this gaping open wound, um, and it's yellow. Like, I, I think she's putting iodine on my foot and cleaning my stinky, nasty foot that has been working all day and then playing soccer for the last couple hours. Here, here I sit in her house as she tends my wound bleeding in her home with my nasty, stinky feet. This is the image I have of hospitality. And I think this is the image that the New Testament writers use when they use the, the Greek term philozenia, which, which really means the love of stranger. I had no idea who this person was. She definitely didn't know who I, I looked. You saw the picture. I looked like that, right? Like that's what I showed up looking like with this crazy big hair. And she welcomed me into her home. And she tended to my wounds, and she took care of me. And then she sent me on my way. I have no, I'll never see this woman again. I had to wear a diaper on my foot the rest of the week because uh, the foot with the wound was so bad I couldn't even put pressure on it, but that's another story. Um, the dictionary defines hospitality as the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers. 
the friendly reception and treatment of guests and strangers. So what does it mean then to be radical in our friendly reception and treatment of guests and strangers? Well, if you remember back to the very beginning of this, I, I wrote a blog, and I'm sure all of you read it, um, about this term radical. And, and the word in, in Latin actually means, it's radix is the term in Latin, and it actually means root. So often we associate negative connotations with radical, like right, somebody's been radicalized, we think something bad typically. But really it just means root. Getting back to the root of something. What does it mean to get back to the root of hospitality? And in some ways I would actually argue that this is exactly what we're doing as people of faith, is getting back to the very root of who we are as a people when we begin to investigate what it means to express and have actions of radical hospitality. What is at the very root of what this really means? Jordan, a little bit ago, read Genesis 18. This is probably one of the most familiar examples of what hospitality looks like in, in the whole Bible, right? Genesis 18 with Abraham welcoming in these, these strangers, right? He doesn't know they're angels at the time. He just thinks that they're random strangers who have entered into this space. And you, I mean, Sammy talked about it. He drops everything to welcome them in. This was known as the, the Bedouin law of hospitality. It wasn't just Abraham that did this. Abraham did this because it was the expectation of what people would do in this time and in this place. They would do it for guests, right, like their friends, but then they would also do it for strangers, those they had no idea who this person was, and, talk about radical, they were expected to do this for their enemies as well. Remember Psalm 23? You prepare a place for me, a table for me, at the place of the table for me in the presence of my enemies? That's what that's referring to, this Bedouin law of hospitality. You prepare a place for me at the table in the presence of my enemies. We see it again with, with Rahab, right, in Joshua chapter 2, when Joshua sends the spies in, she welcomes them into her home. Why would people do this? What's at the root of this sense of hospitality? Well, I think there's, there's various and a variety of reasons why people express hospitality, but first and foremost, it's because, again, it's, it's at the very nature of who we are as a people of faith. I believe that the God that we worship and the God we serve and the God in whose image we are created in is a hospitable God. Hospitality is part of the character and nature of who God is. And we see this in the scriptures as well, right? Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 and 17 actually says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. Doesn't stop there. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, right? Why do we offer hospitality? Because God offers hospitality. God is indeed hospitable. We are created in the image of a hospitable God. And why? Because God calls us to. There's a sense of reciprocity in the midst of it, right? Remember that you were once a people in Egypt, enslaved, and you also received hospitality when you were being liberated. God showed hospitality to you. Go, therefore, and show hospitality to others as well. And finally, you never know who you are entertaining when you welcome somebody in. Like Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis, it may be angels. Or flip to the next page, chapter 19, Lot gets the same thing, if you remember the story of Lot, welcoming angels out of the city square in where? Sodom, right? Like there's this sense of welcoming in the strangers because it's what God has designed us to do. Now, there's a little bit of a practical aspect to it. 
There could be. Both Abraham and Lot were promised blessings for their willingness to be hospitable to others, right? So there may be this sense of, if I'm hospitable, well, then I too will receive, will receive hospitality from others. God will bless me with hospitality as well. Back when we did the wisdom chapter, last chapter, we talked about this idea of the Deuteronomistic understanding of wisdom, that if you do good, you will get good. So there might have been a little bit of a sense of that, right? Just a practical sense of, if I'm hospitable to others, I too will receive hospitality. Or if you fear the stranger and what might happen with the stranger in your presence, you have a couple options. You can express power in the form of hard power, right? Use the resources we have available against the stranger in our midst to make sure that they don't harm us or don't steal from us or don't take from us, don't conquer us. Or you can use power in the terms of soft power and use resources to welcome them in. There was literally, the rabbis argued over this and said, the, idea, the reason you invite somebody in is because if they're a stranger and you treat them better than what they would expect to be treated, why would they ever do anything wrong to you? That's using soft power as a way of hospitality to welcome people in and say, you don't need to steal. What I have is yours. Come and dine with me. Let me provide you shelter. It's hard to even imagine. Why is this radical? It's hard to even imagine, wrap our minds around this sense of hospitality in the modern world in which we live, right? This is the very context from which Jesus emerges, right? As, a, as a, a rabbi, a teacher in the Jewish faith, this is the context in which he emerges. And when we read in Matthew 25, right, you get the sheeps and the goats. What does he say? I was a stranger and you welcomed me. When, when were you a stranger, Lord, and we welcomed you? You never know when you're entertaining angels. This is the context with which we also get today's scripture lesson from Luke chapter 10. Jesus is... If you read through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem. Over and over again, Luke tells us he's on his way to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. And on his way up to Jerusalem, he sends out the disciples, the 12, but then he also sends out 72, pairs of 72. And he sends them out to go and take the temperature of the towns in which they're going to stay on their way up to Jerusalem. What are they taking the temperature of? How hospitable are the places that we are going to be entering into? Jesus in 72, I invite you to, to rise and body your spirit as you hear the gospel text this morning, as, as we read uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, see this sense of hospitality that was expected from Jesus when he sends out the 72. He says this, after these things, the Lord commissioned 72 others and sent them on ahead in Paris to every city and place he was about to go. He said to them, the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for harvest. Go, be warned, though, that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Carry no wallet, no bag, no sandals. Don't even greet anyone along the way. Whenever you enter a house, first say, may peace be on this house. If anyone there shares God's peace, then your peace will rest on that person. If not, your blessing will return to you. Remain in this house, eating and drinking whatever they set before you, for workers deserve their pay. Don't move from house to house, and whenever you enter a city and its people welcome you, eat what they set before you. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, God's kingdom has come upon you. Whenever you enter a city and the people don't welcome you, go out in the streets and say, as a complaint against you, we brush off the dust of your city that has collected on our feet, but know this, God's kingdom has come to you. I assure you that Sodom will be better off on the day of judgment than this city. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Even Sodom will be better off on the day of judgment than these cities. Jesus got hot takes today. Even Sodom 
we're better off. And you may think, well, why reference Sodom? I just talked about a lot in, in Genesis 19 and Sodom, and you probably have images in your head emerging as to why Sodom is referenced here and what the sin of Sodom is. And I brought a little show and tell this morning because uh, I'm going to challenge a little bit of maybe some of your preconceived notions on the sin of Sodom. Um, there's a lovely book called The Invention of Sodomy in Christian Theology. Imagine being married to me, and whenever you open the mail, you see this book, and you think, what in the world is my husband ordering from, from the bookstore right now? So I'm sorry. Uh, you just never know what's going to open and get there. Um, it turns out the sin of sodomy may not be what you think it is. The idea of a, the, the term sodomite didn't even emerge until the 11th century with a theologian in the 11th century in the medieval times. The original, quote, sodomite were those who failed to practice hospitality. That was the sin of Sodom. Bring that up at a dinner conversation sometime, right? When you don't receive great hospitality, call them sodomites and see how well that goes. Don't really do that. I'm not really advising that. It's probably not the best choice. But if you, if you need proof of this, turn only to Ezekiel chapter 16, and it says, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were proud, had plenty to eat, and enjoyed peace and prosperity, but she didn't help the poor and the needy. They became haughty and did detestable things in front of me, and I turned away from them as soon as I saw it. This was the sin of Sodom. This is why Sodom was destroyed. And whether or not you believe that, that God actually rained down right, um, fire on, on Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, whatever the case may be, the reality is they became so consumed with their own well-being that they lost sight of what it meant to care for those who were in need, to care for those who were hungry, those who were needing shelter, those who were um, desperate in those times. So Jesus sends out these 72s in pairs to go and take a temperature. What's it like in these communities? What are we going to find? Is there going to be a friendly um, reception and treatment? Will they provide shelter? Will they give us food and water? And it's the taking a temperature of, of a household, the taking a temperature of a community, for instance, taking temperature of an entire nation. And the hospitality, or the lack thereof of hospitality, is an indicator of the health and the well-being, and ultimately will determine whether or not that house and that community and that nation will flourish. It's a thermometer. Will that space flourish? Again, whether you believe it was actually like fire raining down or not, Sodom and Gomorrah self-imploded essentially because they lost sight of who they were at the core. They lost sight of the root of who they were as a people of faith. As a, pe as a people created in the image of God, they lost what it meant to be hospitable. This is the warning that the Hebrew scriptures give us. This is the warning the prophets continue to give over and over. Our poor Bible study group on Wednesday, I made them sit and talk about um, a huge passage from Jeremiah that kind of exemplified this. And at the end of the, the Bible study, they said, you can't preach on that. It's too, it's too intense. You've got to find something out of the New Testament that's a little bit more consumable. They, you guys are more generous than that, but that's what I took from it. Like, like there's too much there. And the reality is, y'all, this is a really, like, hospitality is so much at the root um, of what the prophets were professing to the people of Israel so that they didn't lose their way and they didn't find destruction. That's what the point of the prophets were, right? To warn you of the direction you are headed the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, and that's what the prophets of today continue to do. And one of those prophets is Diana Butler Bass. Has anybody ever heard of Diana Butler Bass? 
She's a church historian. She's brilliant. She's a great writer. Fantastic. She, uh, you can find her on Substack. If you don't know what Substack is, talk to me later. But she has, it's called The Cottage. And uh, she usually puts out a Sunday musing. She's a church historian, not a preacher, but she's a great theologian. And uh, her Sunday musing is kind of her own like, version of a sermon that she sends out every week. And she actually sent out her Sunday musing yesterday. And you know what the title of it was? Radical Hospitality. Radical Hospitality, which I'm really grateful for um, because she wanted to get it out so preachers could see it before they stood up in the pulpits on Sundays. And in this, as a church historian, she says, the unanimous witness of the ancient fathers and mothers was that hospitality was the primary Christian virtue. The primary Christian virtue. And then she goes on to say this, and you can read along with me. From what historians can gather, hospitality, not martyrdom, served as the main motivator for conversion. Early Christians found both spiritual and social power in such acts for creating inclusive community, a community of radical welcome and love that can put you at odds with ungodly authorities. It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our many opponents, claimed the African theologian Tertullian. Only look, they say, look at how they love one another. Look at how they want love one another. It's that philoxenia we talked about earlier. That's the driving sense of what it meant to be Christian in the early sense. That's the root of what it meant to have this sense of hospitality. So this week when news came out that our elected officials, who often profess to be people of faith, were using people as pawns in their political games, my friends, we had reason to be concerned. Because this isn't hospitality that's being expressed, it's anti-hospitality. To tell migrants that they're going to get on a plane and be flown to Boston where they will receive shelter and there will be jobs for them. A better life is waiting for them. That's a, I don't use the word evil very often, right? That's a downright evil act. And it's not anything that's new either, right? Like this comes from the 1960s when southern states would send black people a one-way ticket up to the northern cities and say, there's going to be a better life for you there. There will be jobs for you. There will be a place for you to live. And then they would arrive in those cities and they would say, we had no idea you were coming. Just like Martha's Vineyard had no idea that they were coming until 20 minutes before that plane landed. Friends, this is not hospitality. We have reason to be concerned, especially based on the biblical narratives that I have just outlined for you here. How's our temperature looking right now? When nations fail to be hospitable, to offer that friendly reception and treatment We have good reason for great concern. Now, everybody knows our immigration system is wildly broken. Like, if we need any kind of, like, political agreement, either here or across the nation, we can all agree that our immigration system is wildly broken. And president after president after president says they're going to fix it, whether that's, you know, dumping money in in the infrastructure and the process or whether that's building a massive wall. Everyone has an idea of how to fix it, and nobody has. And I wish I had the answer for you right here. I don't. (laughs) I don't. If I did, I wouldn't be standing right here, right? I'd probably be really rich for being able to solve that. But um, I don't have the answer for that. But I can tell you what's not effective. And what's not effective is that as the state of Texas, over the last year, we have spent $4 billion, you heard that right, billion with a B, on Operation Lone Star. You know what Operation Lone Star was? It was our legislature and our governor putting tens of thousands of uh, Texas um, Guard, National Guard, at the border. And we saw the images that emerged out of that, right? We saw Border Patrol agents on horses with uh, lassoing people who were coming across the Rio Grande. And you want to know what has changed in that last year when we spent $4 billion? Concretely, nothing. 
we have no evidence to show that anything changed over the last year. And this isn't just my opinion, right? Like, just go Google Operation Lone Star, and you will see over and over again people criticizing. You want to know how much money we had budgeted for Operation Lone Star? $800 million, which seems like a whole lot anyway. And all of a sudden now we've spent $4 billion in one year. Do you know where we rank in healthcare as the state of Texas? It's not 50, but it's real close. We're way down at the bottom. Budgets are moral documents, my friends. Where we put our money is where our heart lies. It is quite clear we have great reason for concern in our, our cities, in our nation, and friends, even here in our own churches. It's time that we start asking, and this is the invitation that we find in the text this morning. What does hospitality look like for us? Where do we find ourselves in the midst of this? How are we viewing the other and the stranger? Is it phyloxenia or is it xenophobia? Now, I don't want to leave you on a terrible note because that's a pretty terrible note. There is hope in the midst of this, right? The prophets also like to bring a little bit of hope in the midst of the bad. Martha's Vineyard was hopeful. What did they do? They opened their arms and they welcomed those people. I don't know if you've seen these images, but like, the, the joy that's on the face of some of these people as they played soccer, right? And they got shelter and they were given food. The same things are happening in our city. We are partnering with Faith Forward Dallas. We're partnering with um, Oakland United Methodist Church. We're partnering with um, Dallas. It's called Dallas Responds is really the, the nonprofit that's doing a lot of the work here to make sure that when immigrants are put on buses at the border and shipped up north, when they make it to Dallas, they have a place to go that's going to welcome them and treat them humanely, because this is the problem. Sending them on a plane where they're not going to be welcomed, or they don't think they're going to be welcomed, that's a dehumanizing treatment. That's a problem, my friends. If you've never been with Texas Impact to the courts and port trips, I implore you to go. Go down to the border and meet Gladdy in Matamoros and hear her stories of people who have made the months-long trip to get to the border and then what they experience waiting at the border. Go sit in the courtroom where judges will... will send actually migrants back to their countries, but we've found that when people of faith sit in those courtrooms, the judges are actually more humane to those people. Can you, can you believe that? The judges are more humane to them simply knowing that people of faith are sitting in their courtrooms. Why is that? Because that's who we are at the core of who we are is our being. People of faith are hospitable. It's by our nature to be hospitable. Friends, there is good news in this. There is indeed hope in the midst of this, and you are that hope. You get to be the person in Martha's Vineyard. You get to partner over at Dallas Responds at Oakland and welcome those people off the bus. And if you can't do it for whatever reason, God knows your dollars help it, right? Like there's so many ways to help people who find themselves in terrible situations and say, we see you as a stranger in our land. Let us help you. Let us, let us receive you with open arms as opposed to sending you off as if you were just a problem to us. The immigration system broken. We can all agree on this. I don't have all the answers, my friends, but I know that as a people of faith, this is what we are called to do. This is what we are called to be and how we are called to be. The question, my friends, is how radical will we be in our hospitality? Amen.